0: Experience is the teacher of all things. Julius Caesar. Welcome to episode 29 of the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. We left off last episode with Caesar deciding on the fate of the Helvetii. Remember, he left his troops three days to rest and then went and caught up with Helvetii and accepted their surrender. In a show of mercy and intelligent strategy, he then had an allied tribe feed them and send them back to their homeland with orders to rebuild their homes and replant their crops. And after this victory, leaders from all over Gaul came to Caesar to pay their respects. And they also asked his permission to hold a meeting of Gallic leaders where they wanted to come to some sort of secret consensus on a request they wanted to make of Caesar. Caesar gave his consent to this meeting, and off they went to meet with each other. And that is where we pick back up today on episode 29 of the March of History. So sometime later, these tribal leaders who left to have that grand meeting in Gaul return, and they come to visit Caesar with a request for an audience with Caesar. They then ask Caesar to discuss a secret matter with them that involved their own welfare and the good of all, as they say. And they asked that Caesar keep what they said in this meeting a secret as well. And when Caesar agreed to this request, he says in the commentaries, quote, they all wept and threw themselves at Caesar's feet, end quote. Again, with the weeping and begging at Caesar's feet, it seems that ancient peoples were big on falling at the feet of great people and, and weeping and begging for mercy, or, or at least it seems to have happened a lot in Caesar's life, but it's not unique to Caesar. The ancient world has a lot of this. Anyway, they go on to reiterate to Caesar that if anything they're about to discuss in this meeting becomes public knowledge, they foresaw a terrible fate for themselves. And Diviciacus of the Idui is at this meeting as well, and he's acting as basically spokesman for the Gallic leaders to Caesar. And just a reminder of who Diviciacus is, he is the powerful druid of the Idui, the tribe that is allied to Rome, and his brother was the man Dumnorix who was leading the Allied Cavalry, or at least the Adui portion of the Allied Cavalry, in the fight against Helveti. He's the one that caused the rout and made Caesar's cavalry run away and caused that embarrassing defeat. And he was behind the issues with Caesar's grain supply. So that is all Dumnorx. That's Daviciacus' brother. But it was because of Daviciacus, the powerful druid, that Dumnorx was able to evade punishment for that. So Viciacus is a very close friend to Rome and to Caesar, and so he's kind of acting as the spokesman for all these gathered Gallic leaders. And Viciacus explains to Caesar that at this point, Gaul is basically divided into two factions. One faction is led by the Aedui, his tribe, and the other by a tribe known as the Averni. And for years, these two factions have been battling along with their allies to be considered the top dog in Gaul. And at some point during this ongoing war, at some point recently, the Averni, along with an allied tribe of theirs known as the Sequani, had hired a group of 15,000 German mercenaries from across the Rhine to come join the battle. Now, here's the thing about inviting foreign powers to help you fight your wars. It's often surprisingly easy to get them to help, but Once they're there in your territory, it's often very difficult to make them leave. And sure enough, once the Germans get into Gaul, they decide that they quite like this land, and they would love to have some of it for themselves, and that they don't feel like leaving anymore. So they begin to invite more and more of their German friends, and their number increases and increases until there's about 120,000 German soldiers in Gaul by the time of this meeting. And of course, the same old caveats I, I have continued to mention about ancient numbers and sources, not always accurate, but again, if we throw them out, we have nothing to work with. And Vickyakis continues to tell his story. He says that the Idwe and their dependents, or their kind of lower-tier allies, I guess you'd call them, had fought numerous engagements with the Germans and had been defeated on various occasions. And these defeats had been disastrous for the Aidawee. And had seen most of their aristocracy wiped out, most of their senators killed, and most of their cavalry force killed in these battles as well. And a combination of all these defeats and, and the disastrous elimination of the Idawe elite meant that the Aedui had to surrender many prominent citizens to the rival Sequani as hostages, and they were forced to take an oath. And Caesar relays Divicciacus' words in the Gallic commentaries about this oath as, quote, And to bind the state by an oath, never to ask for the hostages' return, nor to beg the help of the Roman people, nor to deny their perpetual subjection to the power and dominion of the Sequani end quote. And Evikiakus goes on to say that he alone is free from taking this oath, since he just outright refused to take the oath and refused to give up his children as hostages, because most of these high-born hostages that they're talking about, these important people, are really children of important people, and this is how they would keep the influential people in line, is by having their children. And Viciacus says he even had to flee his own state, meaning the Aidoese territory, to come to Caesar to ask for this help when he refused to take this oath. In other words, he refused to take the oath, and he then got chased out and had to run for his life from his own territory and come to Caesar asking for help to even evade the, uh, I guess, the Germans or the Sequani. But the problems for Gaul don't stop there. Because Divicciacus says that the victorious Sequani, the tribe that had invited the Germans over, had an even worse fate in store for them. You see, a man named Ariovistus, who was the king of these Germans who were invited over by the Sequani to help fight this war and then refused to leave... This man, Ariavistus, had then, at the end of the war, seized one-third of the Sequani land as the price of his help. And I don't think that this was a price that was negotiated beforehand. I think that once he was there, he said, hey, I have 15,000 battle-hardened soldiers with me, and clearly we're the best fighters in this land, otherwise you guys wouldn't have hired us and invited us to fight your war for you, so we don't feel like leaving, so give us one-third of your land. And the Sequani really have no choice. They have to give it up. And this land that they end up giving up is considered the best land in all of Gaul, the best farming land, the land that everybody wants, and now the Germans have it. But that's not where it stops, because now Ariovistus, at the time of this meeting, is ordering another one-third of the Sequani land to be vacated by Sequani. So just get up, leave your houses, walk away, never come back. It's our land now, so he's demanding that another one third, so now a total of two thirds of the quantity territory, be vacated because he has an additional twenty four thousand Germans crossing the Rhine now, or at least they recently re- crossed the Rhine, and he wants to settle them in that territory. And Dvickyak says that he speaks for the Gallic leaders at this meeting, and that the Gallic leaders feared that in the near future, all the Gallic peoples would be driven out of Gaul by fierce Germans coming over the Rhine to take their territory. But that's not where things end for the Sequani, because things get even worse for them. Eventually, Ariovistus, who I'll I'll remind you a few times now, he is the king of the Germans that had come over the Rhine. Eventually, this Ariovistus demands that that the Sequani themselves, that their aristocrats give up their children as hostages as well, So they went from allies of the Germans to clearly they're not allies anymore. They're subservient to the Germans. And we can really see this whole let's invite the Germans to fight our war for us thing backfiring in the Sequani spectacularly. And Vickiakis even says that Ariovistus begins to torture these children, these child hostages, in all sorts of cruel ways. And Caesar provides a description of Ariovistus, but the description seems to be or in the description, he seems to be relaying to Viciacus's words. So it's Caesar saying it in the commentary, but he's relaying to Viciacus's words. And I'm going to read that for you now. Quote, This Ariovistus was a savage, a reckless hothead. They could endure his dictates no longer. Unless Caesar and the Roman people could help, the whole of Gaul would have to do what the Helvetii had once done. Leave their homes and seek out another place to dwell in, far away from the Germans, and to risk whatever fortune might befall. If Arivistus got to hear of this warning, said to Viciacus, he was certain that all the hostages in his keeping would be made to pay the ultimate penalty. End quote. And it's pretty obvious here that outside of telling a narrative, of, of telling a story, Caesar is also building a case to justify intervention. He's painting Arvistus as this cruel and evil person, leading a band of savage, warlike Germans, and they pose a danger to Rome's stability if they can cause all these Gallic tribes to get up and migrate and leave their homes, which, as we've seen throughout this podcast, that is the worst Roman nightmare, is migrating tribes. This idea that they would all do it at once is the worst case scenario for Rome and Caesar continues in the commentaries to tell the story from Divicciacus' viewpoint, stating, quote, But Caesar, either through his own and his army's influence, or because of his recent victory, or through the renown of the Roman people, could discourage him from bringing the Germans over the Rhine in even greater numbers, and could defend all Gaul from Arivistus' outrages. End quote. But this isn't just Caesar using this crisis as an excuse for an intervention and for a war. I mean, Caesar makes some good points. These Germans, if they're going to cause a lot of Gallic tribes to get up and just leave their homes, and if these Germans are attacking allies of Rome, that is a problem. That is a problem for Rome, and if it's not nipped in the bud, it will become a bigger and bigger problem. But it's also, it's the Gallic tribes are also trying to use Caesar and Rome to their advantage, right? So they're both using each other here. Basically, there's this big bully that's been beating up on the Gauls each and every day. That bully's named Ariovistus, the German king, right? And now the Gauls just encountered another big tough guy on the block. His name is Julius Caesar and the Romans. And he, they just watched them obliterate the Helvetii. and so the Gauls think to themselves, why don't we pin these two giants against each other and watch them fight? Win-win for the Gauls, right? Or so they think. Clearly they haven't yet learned the lesson about inviting foreign powers in to fight their wars for them. It never ends well. But here's the plot twist about this man Ariovistus, as he's described, this cruel and evil Ariovistus. Ariovistus has the official title of king and friend given to him by the Roman Senate. But that's not where the plot twist finishes, because the person who was consul who actually oversaw all this when Ariovistus was receiving this, this title of king and friend of Rome, was Caesar himself. Caesar was the consul that bestowed this title upon him. So talk about ironic. And there's another weird twist in this whole story. Caesar says that after Diviciacus finishes his speech, all the Gallic leaders begin weeping and begging and throwing themselves at Caesar's feet and asking him for help. And as this crying fest is happening, Caesar looks around the area, looks around the room, and he sees the sequani hanging back with their heads down, just staring at the ground, not saying a word. I mean, the whole room is begging and crying, and the sequani are just sitting there, or standing there, staring at the ground, saying, not a word. And first, when I read this, I did a double take, because... In the narrative so far, they've been talking about the Sequani in like third person saying that the bad Sequani did this and they were fighting the Adui and then they invited the Germans over and that was very bad, but then they got punished because of it and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly we find out in the narrative, the Sequani are just standing there as they're being spoken about this entire time and not contributing anything. It's very odd. It just made me laugh though. Anyway, Caesar sees him standing there and looking awkward and he asks them why they're acting this way. But the Sequani just keeps staring at the ground, just completely non-responsive. And so Caesar keeps on asking them question after question to try to get information out of them. But still, they refuse to respond. And finally, Diviciacus jumps into this super awkward situation and saves the room. And he tells Caesar that the Sequani are the most unfortunate of all the tribes since they host the Germans within their very own territory. And into Viciacus' own words, or at least Caesar's presentation of his own words, quote, for they alone did not even dare to complain in secret or to beg for help. Even in his absence, they were as afraid of Ariovistus' cruelty as if he were actually present. Everyone else at least had some chance of escape, but the Sequani had received Ariovistus within their own borders. All their towns were in his power, and they must endure whatever torments he inflicted. End quote. Well, Caesar was quite convinced by all he heard, and he promises the Gallic leaders that he will take care of this matter and assures them that his influence and his favor will put a stop to Ariovistus' outrageous behavior. He then ends the meeting and sends messengers to Ariovistus requesting a meeting. And these exchanges between Ariovistus and Caesar have always fascinated me because they are two massive egos who are accustomed to getting their way, and now they have to deal with each other, which is always fun to watch. And even from the Gauls' perspective, as I said earlier, they have basically found the two biggest kids on the block and are trying to make them fight each other. So what happens is Caesar sends an embassy to Arivistus, requesting to meet him at a neutral location of his own, meaning Arivistus' choosing, midway between the two of them. Very reasonable, right? He's not ordering Arivistus to come to him. He's not saying Arivistus has to go to this certain location. He's saying it can be a midway point and Arivistus can choose it. But Arivistus replies with pure arrogance. He says that if he, Arivistus, wanted something from Caesar, he would have gone to Caesar. Therefore, if Caesar wants something from Arivistus, he should come to Arivistus. <laughs> Which is just great reasoning. I love it. He also goes on to say that he wouldn't dare enter those parts of Gaul that Caesar controlled without raising his army first, and doing so would require a ton of work on his part to gather all those supplies, and he doesn't feel like doing all that work. Finally, Arivistus basically says that he finds it hard to comprehend what Rome or Caesar could possibly want to tell him, Arivistus, about Gaul, since he had earned these lands through the right of conquest and Rome had no right to tell him to do anything with them. Now, how would we expect a man like Caesar to react to this kind of stubborn arrogance, especially now that he's governor over three major provinces and has his very own army, which is increasingly loyal to him personally? In short, he doesn't take kindly to it. So Caesar sends a messenger back to Ariovistus, reminding him that Caesar and the Roman Senate had been very kind to him during Caesar's consulship by confirming him as king and friend. And despite this kindness, Ariovistus was refusing to even meet with Caesar to discuss matters that involved them both. And because of this, Caesar now made the following demands. No longer is he asking to meet and asking to come to an agreement. Caesar's making demands now. One, Ariovistus should no longer bring large groups of men over the Rhine from Germany into Gaul. Two, Caesar demanded he return the hostages he had taken from the Aedui and that he grant the Sequani permission to release their hostages that they had taken from the Aedui. He also commands Ariovistus to do no more harm to the Aedui or to their allies. Finally, Caesar says that if these demands are met, then Ariovistus would continue to have the friendship and favor of Caesar and the Roman people. However, if these commands were ignored, Caesar gave him notice that he was empowered as governor of the Roman-Gallic provinces to act in Rome's interest and defend its allies, namely the Aedui. In short, Caesar would not ignore the wrongs being done to Rome's allies. And this last point is important because many Roman governors would have felt it out of their jurisdiction to go marching out of their province to go fight a band of Germans. Caesar makes damn sure to let Ariovistus know that he feels perfectly justified in doing this. Ariovistus receives this message and replies with a message of his own, of course. And here's where I find Caesar's Gallic commentaries again to be very interesting because Never forget, all this information is according to Caesar, and Caesar puts some really strong arguments into the mouth of Arivistus here and conveys this to his audience. And as much flack as Caesar gets for the commentaries being a political document that could potentially contain self-bias, there are a lot of scenes in it where he makes his enemies sound very convincing, which to me makes me feel like he is representing their arguments at least relatively truthfully, and here I'm going to let Ariovistus speak in his own words. It's a little bit long, so bear with me, but I think it's worth listening to. Or at least Ariovistus' own words according to Caesar, so never forget that this is all via Caesar. Quote, Ariovistus replied that the laws of warfare said conquerors could rule those they had conquered in whatever way they chose. Moreover, the Romans were themselves accustomed to ruling the conquered according to their own judgment, rather than another man's orders. If he, Ariovistus, was not telling the Roman people how to handle their own jurisdiction, it was not right that they should hinder him in the exercise of his. After hazarding the fortunes of war, attacking him, and being beaten, the Aedui had become his tribute payers. Caesar was doing him a great wrong, for his advance was having a bad effect upon these tax revenues. He was not going to give the Idoi their hostages back, but neither would he wrongfully wage war upon them or their allies if they stuck to the agreement and paid the annual tribute. If they did not, the title of brothers of the Roman people would be of no use to them at all. As for Caesar's declaration that he would be mindful of any wrongs done to the Idoi, no one had ever fought with Ariovistus and not been destroyed. Caesar could engage when he pleased. Then he would understand what the undefeated Germans could achieve by their courage. Men who, with their extraordinary skill and weapons, had not been beneath a roof in 14 years. End quote. So quite a rant from Ariovistus. But he, he makes several reasonable points there, or at least reasonable to the ancient world. The Romans ruled over millions of people around the Mediterranean and did so however they liked. And the Romans would never, never, never accept some foreign power telling them how to treat their subjects. So who was Caesar and who were the Romans to command Ariovistus on how to treat his subjects? And Ariovistus also says some things in there about his warriors and how tough they are and undefeated and how they haven't slept beneath a roof in 14 years. And that was a measure of courage and toughness among the Germanic peoples, was how many years you had spent without going under a covered roof to shelter from the elements. So you can imagine, these guys probably were pretty damn tough. And one other thing that Arivistus says in that rant there that is very important is that he says that the Aedui stick to their agreement and he is not going to harm them. However, Caesar says like right after he receives this message from Arivistus, he gets a message from the Aedui and they say that the most recent band of Germans that had come over the Rhine, the one that Ariovistus was demanding that the tribe the Sequani vacated another third of their land for, that that band of Germans was now raiding the Idui's territory. So, so much for not causing any harm to the Idui if they abided by the agreement. And the Idui said to Caesar that it seems that not even giving up hostages to the Germans could save them from these attacks. Of course just to play devil's advocate, as I always do, this attack could have been a retribution for the fact that they had involved Caesar in this and gone behind Arivistus' back and found a loophole in the oath that they had taken because Daviciacus had not taken the oath. So this could have been, you know, the fact that Daviciacus was Aedui and he was a spokesman for all the tribes and he had involved the Romans, which, I mean, from the oath, you can see that's exactly what Arivistus didn't want to happen. So maybe that's why they're being attacked. It's tough to tell. But at this same time, another tribe known as the Treveri, no relation to myself, <laughs> comes to Caesar and notifies him that hundreds of communities of Suebi which is Ariovistus' German tribe name, they're called the Suebi under the command of two brothers had arrived on the far banks of the Rhine River and were attempting to cross into Gaul. And supposedly there were 100 clans attempting to make this crossing of the Rhine. Which, I mean, if those numbers are correct, that would have been a migration far larger than the Helvetii. And you had seen how much issue they had caused the Romans. And we can also see that German invasions of France go back thousands of years. This is not unique to the World Wars or to the Franco Prussian War. I mean, going back to the time of the ancient Romans, the Germans were coming over the Rhine in mass to invade France. I just think that's kind of funny. And after hearing all of this, and going back and forth with Arivistus like this, and, and seeing the Germans' actions in the meantime, Caesar says that he felt he needed to act to protect Rome's allies from belligerent forces. And he says that he was concerned that if these new Germans crossed over that they would join with Ariovistus' forces and make the task of defending the Roman provinces and their allies that much more difficult. And, I mean, let's be reasonable. He was probably right. It's not like this was an unrelated group of Germans. They were the same tribe as Ariovistus, and he's said to be their king. So it would make sense they would come under his command. So Caesar realizes that, in his own words, he must act swiftly. And we all know that Caesar's version of swift action puts all others to shame. So he quickly gathers up supplies for his army and force marches the legions to meet Ariovistus and the Germans in open combat. And that is where we will end the episode today on the March of History. But before we go, let me just remind you a few quick things If you listen to the podcast on the Apple Store or any platform that allows you to leave reviews, we encourage you to please leave us a review. Write us a little something about what you like about the podcast. We'd really appreciate it if it would be five stars. It really helps the podcast grow. Share the podcast with anybody else that you know that enjoys history and you think would enjoy a podcast like this. Don't forget to subscribe so you get notifications for new episodes coming out. And also, don't forget to follow our Instagram. That's at the March of History. That's at the March of History for lots of historical content, not just Rome, about tons of different history. The Twitter is at March underscore history. And finally, I'm starting to figure out Twitter and do some things with that account. So definitely give it a follow. The Facebook is the March of History. And our email, if you want to send us any feedback or just make contact with us, is History at gmail.com. On any of the social media platforms, we encourage you to comment and to reach out to us, to DM us, and just to interact with us. We enjoy interacting with the audience. And that is it for today. Thank you for listening, and we will be back for the next episode of The March of History.